0: And MIDI can help with safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of MIDI patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com.
1: War has played a key role in the history of the United States, from the nation's founding right down to the present. War made the U.S. independent, kept it together, increased its size, and established it as a global superpower. Understanding America's wars is essential for understanding American history. Welcome to Key Battles of American History, a podcast in which we discuss American history through the lens of the most important battles of America's wars. Here is your host, James Early.
2: Hello, and welcome to another special bonus episode of Key Battles of the Pacific Theater World War II. This is your host, James, as always. And in this episode, I'm going to give you part two of the mini series that I started last time on the role of U.S. presidents, or future U.S. presidents, I should say, in World War II. As I mentioned at the beginning of the first episode in this mini series, we're not going to discuss FDR or Truman, because even though they were the commanders-in-chief, they were not actually on active duty in the military during World War II. And I'm not going to discuss Eisenhower, one, because he was not in the Pacific, and two, because he was such a top commander. And we Eisenhower, there's so much you could say about him. You could do a whole long series just on his actions and his role and his career during the war itself. So I want to started with Kennedy, and Kennedy was the earliest president, chronologically speaking, who was in World War II but was not commander-in-chief or commander, supreme commander of Allied Forces in, in the European theater. Kennedy served in the Navy, had a lot of adventures, commanded a PT boat for a while. Then we talked about Johnson, who did not have active combat service, although he did fly in one combat mission as an observer. And then we talked about President Nixon, who had even less combat experience than Lyndon Johnson. He was a supply officer and a logistics and transport officer the entire war. Not his fault. That's just what he got assigned to. So if you haven't listened to those episodes, I would go back and check them out, or that episode. It's just one before this. So here we go with part two, and we will begin with President Gerald Ford, Following the attack on Pearl Harbor, Ford, who was a lawyer at the time, enlisted in the Navy. He received a commission as an ensign in the U.S. Naval Reserve on April 13, 1942. On April 20th, he reported for active duty to the V-5 Instructor School in Annapolis, Maryland. After one month of training, he went to Navy Pre-Flight School in Chapel Hill, North Carolina, where he was one of 83 instructors, and there he taught elementary navigation skills, ordnance, gunnery, first aid, and military drill. In addition, he coached all nine sports that were offered, but mostly swimming, boxing, and football. And I should take a side note here and just comment on the fact that Ford has an unfair reputation as being a klutz, as being just not athletic because he made a couple of very public falls. And then, of course, (laughs) on the Saturday Night Live show, Chevy Chase, who would Uh, Play Gerald Ford always was falling around and (laughs) knocking things over and all that. And so I think, I think Ford's reputation as a klutz, someone who wasn't very coordinated or athletic, I think that's based mainly on Saturday Night Live and Chevy Chase more than Ford's life experience himself. Ford was actually one of the most athletic presidents we've ever had. He played football at the University of Michigan and he was being recruited by some NFL teams, but he declined to go into the NFL and instead went to law school. So it's not surprising that they tapped him to coach sports at this school. Anyway, during the year he was at the pre-flight school, Ford was promoted to lieutenant junior grade on June 2, 1942, and to lieutenant in March of 1943. After Ford applied for sea duty, he was sent in May 1943 to the pre-commissioning detachment for the new aircraft carrier USS Monterey, that's CBL-26 at Camden, New Jersey. And from the ship's commissioning on June 17, 1943 until the end of December 1944, Ford served as the assistant navigator, athletic officer. That's a great job to have. And he's a very good, appropriate choice for that. And the anti-aircraft battery officer on board the Monterey. While he was on board, the carrier participated in many actions in the Pacific Theater with the 3rd and 5th Fleets in late 1943 and 44. In 1943, the Monterey helped secure Macon Island in the Gilberts and participated in the carrier strikes against Havine, New Ireland in 1943. During the spring of 1944, the Monterey supported landings at Kwajalein and Enwitok and participated in carrier strikes in the Marianas, the Western Carolines, and Northern New Guinea, as well as in the Battle of the Philippine Sea. So Ford's uh, ship was very, very busy all this throughout this time. After an overhaul from September to November 1943, aircraft from the Monterey launched strikes against Wake Island, participated in strikes in the Philippines and the Ryukyus, and supported the landings at Leyte and Mindoro. Although the Monterey was not damaged in combat, it was one of several ships damaged by Typhoon Cobra that hit Admiral William Halsey's 3rd Fleet on December 18th and 19th, 1944. The 3rd Fleet lost three destroyers and over 800 men during the typhoon. The Monterey was damaged by a fire which was started by several of the ship's aircraft tearing loose from their cables and colliding on the hangar deck. Must have been a nightmare. Ford was serving as... General Quarters Officer on the deck and was ordered to go below to assess the raging fire. He did so safely and reported his findings back to the ship's commanding officer. The ship's crew was able to contain the fire and the ship got underway again. But during the storm, Ford narrowly missed being a casualty himself. After Ford left his battle station on the bridge of the ship in the early morning of 18 December, The ship rolled 25 degrees, which caused Ford to lose his footing and slide towards the edge of the deck. The two-inch steel ridge around the edge of the carrier slowed him enough so he could roll and twist into the catwalk below the deck. He later stated, I was lucky. I could have easily gone overboard. You could just visualize Ford just hanging on for dear life. It's a good thing he had his athletic background. It was probably quite strong. All right, after the fire... The Monterey was declared unfit for service. Ford was detached from the ship and sent to the Navy Pre-Flight School at St. Mary's College of California, where he was assigned, guess where? Did you guess Athletic Department? <laughs> I don't know if you did or not, but you, that would be correct. He was assigned to the Athletic Department until April 1945. It's a, you know, it's a tough job, but it's good work if you can get it. <laughs> From the end of April 1945 to January 1946, Ford was on the staff of the Naval Reserve Training Command at Naval Air Station Glenview, Illinois, with the rank of Lieutenant Commander. Ford received the following military awards, the American Campaign Medal, the Asiatic Pacific Campaign Medal, the Philippine Liberation Medal, and the World War II Victory Medal. He was released from active duty under honorable conditions in February 1946 a very busy career for president ford. Now we move on to ford's successor, James Earl, aka Jimmy Carter. From a very early age, Carter wanted to attend the US Naval Academy. After his graduation from high school in 1941, however, there were no spots available. So Carter instead enrolled in Georgia Southwestern College, which is today Georgia Southwestern State University. That fall. The next summer, Carter was accepted into the Naval Academy, but on the condition that he first attend Georgia Tech and be in the Naval ROTC there so that he could take courses in engineering and naval science. While there, Carter finished in the top 10% of his class and made the honor roll. In the fall of 1943, Carter entered the Naval Academy and was enrolled in an accelerated program designed to graduate him in three years rather than the normal four. That was pretty normal during World War II. you know, in 1943, of course, they had no idea when the war was going to end. They didn't know it would end in 1945. And so that year and the year before, they, they wanted to try to get these guys out of there as quickly as possible so that they could go into combat. And sure enough, three years later, Carter graduated. But this was 1946, and by then, of course, the war was over. His first assignment was to the USS Wyoming, which was an old battleship that had been converted into an experimental vessel for testing prototypes of new navigation, radar, fire control, communications, and gunner equipment. Two years later, the Wyoming was scrapped and replaced with the U.S. Mississippi, on which Carter served for a year. Then he applied for submarine service and was accepted. During and after graduation, he served on the USS Pomfret and the USS Barracuda, which were regular submarines. During one mission on the Pomfret, Carter was swept off the ship into the ocean by a great wave. Carter swam for a long time back toward the ship and finally was able to climb aboard. So like President Ford, Carter had a little drama there, and he had it even worse. He actually ended up in in the water, whereas Ford had clung to the edge of the ship for dear life. In March of 1953, Carter began nuclear power school in preparation for serving aboard the USS Seawolf which was under construction and would be the U.S. Navy's second nuclear submarine. But in July of that year, before the training course was over, Carter's father, Earl, died. Carter requested and was granted permission to leave active duty so that he could return home and take over the family business. And That, of course, he did, and he famously became a peanut farmer and then later went into politics. And the rest, as they say, is history. Carter served in the inactive Navy Reserve until 1961 and left the service with the rank of lieutenant. His awards included the American Campaign Medal, the World War II Victory Medal, China Service Medal, and National Defense Service Medal. As a submarine officer, he also earned the Dolphin Badge. So that's Carter. Uh, He actually did not serve in any combat in World War II. He was a student at the Naval Academy during the last few years of World War II. But again, not his fault. He couldn't help it. He was just the timing. He was a little too young. But nevertheless, he served honorably in the Navy and then, of course, went on to bigger and better things. Now, we move on to his successor, President Ronald Reagan. Now, Ronald Reagan did not serve in the Pacific and he was not in the Navy. But I'm going to go ahead and talk about his wartime service anyway, because I find it very interesting. So I hope you'll forgive me this exception. Shortly after his film career began, you know, Reagan became an actor in the mid to late 1930s. Reagan completed a series of home study army extension courses and enlisted in the Army Enlisted Reserve. He was commissioned a second lieutenant in the Officers Reserve Corps of the Cavalry on May 25th, 1937. You heard me correctly, the cavalry. They still had cavalry. Horses were actually still being used in the Army in 1937. Although, of course, they were on their way out. And Reagan thought it would be really cool to be in the military and also get to ride horses around. He, he also thought that maybe that could help him be a good horse horseman, I guess is the word, to, to help him to ride horses well so that he could play cowboys and other roles that would require him to ride horses in the movies. Best of both worlds. <laughs> on April 18th, 1942... Reagan was ordered to active duty for the first time. But due to his poor eyesight, he was classified for limited service only, which excluded him from serving overseas. Reagan had horrible vision, and it just wasn't going to work for him to go overseas. and And unlike John F. Kennedy, he didn't have anybody to pull strings for him. So Reagan's going to end up serving in the United States. After two doctors finished giving him his physical examination, one of them said, if we sent you overseas, you'd shoot a general. The other said, and you'd miss him. It kind of makes you think, well, why not send him after all? But anyway, they didn't. Reagan's first assignment was at the San Francisco Port of Embarkation at Fort Mason, California, as a liaison officer of the Port and Transportation Office. On May 15th, Reagan applied for a transfer from the cavalry to the U.S. Army Air Force. His request was accepted. And since he had been an actor before the war, he was assigned to the AAF Public Relations Department and subsequently to the 18th AAF Base Unit, which is also called the Motion Picture Unit at Culver City, California. They figured, hey, this guy's an actor. If he, even if he can't see and can't go overseas and fight uh, the Japanese or the Germans, we can get him to make films to prop up the war effort at home, patriotic films. And so that's exactly what he did. Reagan took part in the production of dozens of films. He played a lieutenant in a film called The Rear Gunner, and that motivated many young men to volunteer for that position. You know, they had had films about pilots, and then they got a lot of people sign up for to be pilots, but they needed rear gunners too, and, and they weren't getting enough people to volunteer for that. It wasn't seen as glorious or sexy, so So let's make a movie out of it with Ronald Reagan. And that, sure enough, it worked. They got more rear gunners. He also narrated a film called Beyond the Line of Duty and starred in others, including Westward to Bataan, Target Tokyo, The Fight for the Sky, and of course, many others. And of course, none of these are films that would be considered classics today or anything you would probably want to watch. Unless you're just super interested in President Reagan or super interested in the history of patriotic films but nevertheless they they did prop up the war effort at home on january 14 1943 reagan was promoted to first lieutenant and was sent to the provisional task force show unit of this is the army at burbank california he returned to the 18th aaf base unit after completing this duty and was promoted to captain on july 22nd 1943. in january 1944 Reagan was ordered to temporary duty in New York City to participate in the opening of the Sixth War Loan Drive, which campaigned for the purchase of war bonds. Also very important, raising money. You can't conduct a war if you don't have any money and if you can't pay for it. And so Reagan was one of many Hollywood stars that helped raise money for the war. Then he was reassigned, sent back to the 18th AAF base unit on November 14, 1944 where he remained until the end of World War II. By the end of the war, his units had produced some 400 training films for the Air Force, including cockpit simulations for B-29 crews scheduled to bomb Japan. Reagan was separated from active duty on December 9, 1945 as an Army captain. James here, and now a brief word from our sponsors.
0: It's true that some things change as we get older.
2: So, again, you know, if you can't go out and fight, if you're not physically able to do that, why not promote morale, raise money, and help with training of people who are going to fight? So, Reagan did the best he could. And that is all I have to say about Reagan. And now we move to Reagan's successor, his vice president and successor, and the final president, to serve in the Second World War, and that is George H.W. Bush. And this, to me, along with Kennedy, is the most fascinating story. I absolutely love this story. I always tell this to my students as well. So, without further ado, let's get into it. On December 7, 1941, George H.W. Bush was a 17-year-old senior at Andover Academy, a prestigious prep school in Massachusetts. After the attack on Pearl Harbor, he resolved to join the Navy and become a pilot as soon as he could. And on June 12, 1942, which was his 18th birthday, Bush attended his commencement ceremony. After the ceremony, he went straight to a Navy office in Boston and was sworn into the Navy. He was ordered to report for basic training at Chapel Hill, North Carolina on July 22, 1942. And that he did, and he passed the training with flying colors. That November, Bush transferred to Wald Chamberlain Field in Minneapolis for flight training, where he again excelled. The Following spring, Bush was sent to the Naval Air Station in Corpus Christi, Texas. On June 9, 1943, he was commissioned an ensign in the U.S. Naval Reserve and received his wings as a naval aviator. And at the time, he was one of the youngest, if not the youngest, naval aviators in the Navy. He was 18, you know, prior to the outbreak of World War II or at least prior to the attack on Pearl Harbor, you had to have at least two years of college to go into the naval aviator program. But they, of course, waived that program. And so Bush becomes one of many who had just a high school diploma to go and become a Navy a pilot or a naval aviator. And he was given the assignment to fly torpedo bombers off aircraft carriers in the Pacific Theater. That fall in Fort Lauderdale, Florida, Bush was introduced to the plane he would be flying in the Pacific, the Grumman TBF Avenger Torpedo Bomber, one of the most important planes that the Americans had in the Pacific Theater. And in Fort Lauderdale, Bush practiced bombing runs. And after this, he was sent to Lake Michigan, or to the base near Lake Michigan, and there he learned to take off from and to land on a carrier. Finally, Bush was ordered to Norfolk, Virginia, to join his squadron, VT-51. The squadron was assigned to the brand-new carrier, the USS San Jacinto, which also happens to be the name of the college where I teach, San Jacinto College. Of course, that's an Anglic- Anglicization. I don't know if I said that right, but it's, it's, uh, it's a Spanish... Uh, it's a name, San Jacinto. It's St. Hyacinth. And, of course, there's a famous... Creek there, an even more famous battle that ended the Texas Revolution, but I digress. Sorry, I had to work in as much Texas stuff as I could. So, on December 15th, the San Jacinto departed, reaching Hawaii on April 20th, 1944. A month later, on May 21st, at Majuro Harbor in the Marshall Islands, Bush set off on his first combat mission, bombing Wake Island. His, he flew several more missions after this and was promoted to lieutenant junior grade on August 1st. On September 1st, 1944, Bush participated in a bombing run on a radio tower on Chichijima, which is a Japanese or was a Japanese-held island 150 miles from Iwo Jima and only 500 miles from the Japanese home islands. He and all the other bombers missed the target. So, of course, they had to go out the next day and try again. The next day, Bush and his crewman William White, who was a guest gunner, he was filling in for the regular gunner that Bush usually had, and Del Delaney returned with the squadron to Chichijima to try again. As they approached the island, their plane was hit. And now I'm going to give you a pretty lengthy quote from John Meacham's biography. Uh, John Meacham's biography of George H.W. Bush is just absolutely fantastic. It's one of the best books I've ever read. I highly recommend it. Great book. And I got it half-price books for like $8, so that makes it doubly sweet. Anyway, here's what John Meacham has to say about what happened to Bush next. Quote, As the Avenger jolted forward, Bush was able to keep it on target. Smoke filled the cockpit. Flames raced along the wings. My God, Bush thought, this thing is going to blow up. Bush radioed White and Delaney to put their parachutes on. The Avenger, he knew, was going down. Bush, who was choking on the smoke, kept the plane on course, dropping his bombs. This time he scored, damaging the radio tower, and then gave the plane as much speed as he could as he roared off out to sea. Now this is Bush's words. I'm quoting Meacham, quoting Bush. I realized I couldn't keep the plane in the air very long because of the severity of the fire and told our guys to get out. Bush recalled his words that day. Hit the silk! He could not be sure that they had heard him. No one answered. Bush reported to his parents, though we had talked not long before. He looked back, he recalled, but could not see white, so he assumed that the guest gunner had gone below to put on his parachute. End of quote. At an altitude of 2,000 feet, Bush bailed out, gashing his head and bruising his eye on the tail of the plane as he flew through the sky. As he floated toward the ocean, he watched the burning plane crash into the ocean, and sink beneath the waves. When Bush plunged into the ocean, he kicked off his shoes and inflated his life jacket, which was called a May West by naval and AAF personnel. Uh, if you don't know why it was called a May West, look up <laughs> May West and you'll, you'll learn very quickly. He looked up and he saw his squadron commander point to a nearby uninflated life raft that had fallen out of his life jacket. Bush swam toward the raft, inflated it, and got in. The wind was blowing him toward Chichijima, where the enemy was waiting. The life raft had lost its oar, so Bush paddled away from the island with his hands. While he did so, he was stung by a Portuguese man-of-war, and he also began to feel sick because of the salt water that he had swallowed when he went into the ocean. Not a good situation. He's He's heading, because of the current and the wind, he's heading toward Chichijima, where things would obviously not end pleasantly. Bush's squadron commander summoned the USS Finback, which is a nearby submarine, on what they called lifeguard duty. It was assigned to watch for pilots that might have to bail out and pick them up. One of Bush's fellow pilots dropped some medical supplies for his injuries. After using those, Bush scattered dye marker around his raft to make him more visible to the American pilots above. But a Japanese boat spotted him and headed toward him. An American pilot saw this. An open fire on the boat buying some time for bush but the wind and the tide were working against him bush later recalled for a while there i thought i was done but just then the finback surfaced bush thought he was hallucinating can you imagine that you you're injured and you're tired and you're feeling sick and you've been stung by a portuguese man of war and you're trying to survive and you've been paddling and boom all of a sudden here comes this submarine But he was not hallucinating. Four men from the submarine dove into the water, swam to the life raft, and pulled Bush onto the sub. Finback shot Bush's raft to pieces and submerged. Neither White nor Delaney, tragically, were ever found. Here's some more from John Meacham. Bush, quote, was physically fine. The cuts and bruises were minor, as was some brief soreness in his back and one leg, but emotionally fragile. He had barely escaped death or capture. He later learned that Chichijima was the scene of horrific war crimes against American prisoners of war, including cannibalism, and the loss of White and Delaney remained with Bush for the rest of his life. End quote. Bush stayed on the Finback for a month before getting off at Midway Island and then flying to Hawaii. He was eligible to return to the U.S. and do shore duty, but he refused. He wanted to finish his mission. He returned to the San Jacinto, and in November conducted several bombing runs over the Philippines, supporting the American attempt to retake the islands. You have to wonder if he ever, like, ran into Gerald Ford or met Gerald Ford. Probably not because they were on different ships, but it's an interesting thought. Ford was on another carrier. Anyway, in early 1945, Bush was assigned to a new combat squadron, VT-153, where he trained to take part in an invasion of mainland Japan. But... On September 2, 1945, before any evasion took place, Japan formally surrendered. Bush was released from active duty that same month, but was not formally discharged from the Navy until October 1955, by which time he had reached the rank of lieutenant. By the end of his period of active service, Bush had flown 58 missions, completed 128 carrier landings, and recorded 1,228 hours of flight time. Wow, isn't that an amazing story? You may have already heard that story, but what an what an incredible uh, story. What a great hero Bush was. And well, that is all I have on U.S. presidents in World War II. I hope you enjoyed it. I really, you know, I love presidents. I've, I did a whole other podcast series called Presidential Fight Club, which you should check out if you haven't already. It's fun. And, uh... And of course, I love World War II. So this is a perfect way to combine two of my loves, World War II and U.S. presidents. And just to help you to get to know some of our presidents before they were presidents. You know, what kind of stuff did they go through as young men? They all, uh, you know, except for Reagan and Carter, they all had at least a little bit of combat experience. And many of them, as we've seen, came within an inch of their life. All right, well with that, I will sign off. I hope you enjoyed it, and uh, thank you for listening, and I'll see you again soon. Take care. Thank you for listening to today's episode. If you would like to support this podcast and help it to grow, there are four things you can do. First, you can subscribe to the podcast and leave a review on the podcast player of your choice. This helps other people to find the podcast. Ratings and reviews on Apple podcasts are especially helpful. Second, Join our Facebook group, American History Fanatics, where we discuss the episodes of this podcast, as well as other topics related to American history. Third, tell as many friends as you can about the show. And fourth, you can join the elite unit called Early's Raiders by going to patreon.com and searching for Key Battles of American History. There are five different levels of support to choose from. Each level allows you to have early access to ad-free episodes, higher levels, Bring additional benefits, including bonus episodes and even the ability to commission episodes on topics of your choosing. Before I close, I would like to give a shout out to the current members of Early's Raiders. Thanks to Majors Chris C., Bob McCullough, and Melissa Mueller, Captains Alex Coombs, Blue Ridge 201, Grant Holmstrom, Jeff Henley, Jose Martinez, Michael Fane, Mike Leslie, Ryan Apachean, and Stephen James and Lieutenants David Louisa, Jeff Sabo, Matthew Christensen, Patrick Brennan, and Scott Hendricks. I greatly appreciate your support.
1: Thank you for listening to Key Battles of American History. If you liked this episode, please subscribe to the podcast on your favorite podcast catcher. And please be sure and spread the word about the show. If you can spare a few minutes, rate and review the show at Apple Podcasts. This greatly helps us to reach more listeners. And for show notes, maps, and further discussion, visit our website at www.keybattlesofamericanhistory.com. Thank you, and we look forward to joining you again in the next episode of Key Battles of American History.